This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm great, but how, how are you? I watched your speech... You stormed it. It was sort of. It, it wasn't too bad for ten thirty on, or ten fifteen on a Sunday morning. You see, this is how it goes at Glastonbury. Sometimes they get the. There's like a legend spot. Am I the legend? <laughs> That's interesting. Am I the legend? I think you are. You, you, you're now like the heritage legend on a uh... heritage. Is that what you're? That's, that's you. Own it, Ed. Is that what you're saying? Did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it actually. I did enjoy, but I hadn't spoken to the conference for since I was leader and I did it and um I did it, I, I enjoyed doing it yeah I, it was also quite good to do it on the Sunday because then you sort of got it out of the way got a number of stories for you oh great 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 okay here's my here's my top story which could have been my reason to be cheerful but honestly it's sort of, I'm, I'm, I think it goes sort of beyond embarrassment of riches this week is it well I don't know about it. I mean embarrassment might be the word so so I, I find this very old this whole thing right um this, this story I'm about to tell you I went out to a restaurant called the Chili Pickle in Brighton, i.e. an Indian restaurant. Um, and at the end, Fabrizio, as he turned out to be called, who runs, runs the restaurant, came up to me. He, he, he sort of was very, he kind of greeted me, recognised me uh, at the beginning. And then at the end, he came up to me and he, he said, um, you came on a date to the restaurant I used to work at in London, an Italian restaurant which has now closed in November 1997. Wow! I mean, it was a bit. It was a bit sort of. Do Do you remember going on a date in November 1997? Well, I mean, do you remember what you were doing in November 1997? I don't remember what I was doing in November last year. I mean, me neither. And so, what was sort of slightly bizarre about this was that he said, 
are you now married to that person? Well, no, because I met my wife some years later. But 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 what's sort of slightly bizarre about it is is um well a how he remembered because I, nobody knew who, who nobody knew who I was in November nineteen ninety seven um, and. So he must have then seen me on television some years later. Remember, he says he's got a photographic memory. Well, there are people like that, but this really begs the question, what the hell were you doing on that date in November 1997 that made you so memorable? What romantic overtures were you making? Was it public displays of affection? Were you heavy petting? Not, Had you hired I mean, a violinist? Was it so obviously disastrous to even the waiter, that it is still instantly memorable all these years later. I mean, w- what does this tell us about your dating techniques? I mean, none of it sounds like me, does it? Maybe the bit about it being a disaster. I, I, I must say, it's sort of stuck, you know, never mind Lone Party Conference, it's sort of stuck in my mind for the two days afterwards. I was thinking, should I start texting, you know, somebody to say, were you the person with me at the November 1997 at this time? As if anyone's going to remember, though. Ah, oh, come on, Ed. I'm sure you are an unforgettable date. There you go. For any number of reasons. But um, implied in what you just said is that there are any number of candidates from your Casanova days of November 1997. That was a different date every night. No, it was quite spooky, actually. Surely if uh, if you were out in November 1997, it would have been with Gordon Brown on, a, on some kind of working dinner. That is the answer. It was Gordon Brown. <laughs> You've solved the mystery. It was me, Gordon Brown and Ed Balls. <laughs> Did Fabrizio say anything about the date being a thruple? I just wondered whether it was like mistaken identity and he just thought it was me. Anyway, it was a long time ago. But Fabrizio never forgets. Fab- I think that is correct. I mean, Fabrizio <laughs> has a like uh, photographic memory, obviously, or something graphic, depending on how wild the date was. I'm thinking Boris Becker. So anyway, that's my that is that's my top billing story from Lone Puddy Conference. And you had a nice time at the seaside, right? I didn't buy you any saucy postcards, oh. or any postcards actually. I did meet at Brighton Gin. I'm guessing that's a local gin distillery. It, it has to be said that. Um, Justine is not a great fan of the timing of Lone Party Conference, never mind sort of any of the rest of it, because it coincides generally with being about a week after her birthday. And so she constantly thinks her birthday is slightly used to have a sort of shadow cast over it by the impending Lone Party Conference. Because you're like obsessing about your speech and getting ready. Yeah, when I was leader. And so... The sort of best thing from Labour Party Conference is that I got a small bottle of gin, and so I can bring that back for Justine. So I'm sorry your birthday was ruined this year, uh, darling, due to my preparations for my uh, shadow business secretary speech. But here's a promotional bottle of yeah. free gin. Okay, but that's the that I've brought you the back. Good, so every, everything's going to be okay. The good now. news is I'm bringing back the gin. The bad news is the gin is currently residing with Ollie in my office because I gave it to him to look after and forgot to get it off him on the way back. So the 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 gin is sort of making its way is making its way back. But look, it's better than. I mean, like, it's like, at least I'm not returning empty-handed, at least notionally. True. The other bad news for Justine is that you've you've been in touch with an old flame after being prompted yeah. by Fabrizio, and yeah. you've rekindled that relationship. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think we should move on, don't you? We should. This week we're talking about inequality, meritocracy, and the idea of the class ceiling. A couple of years ago, sociologists Sam Friedman and Daniel Lorison published a book showing that class significantly affects who can work and progress in certain industries in the UK, describing this as a 
class ceiling. We're going to be talking to Sam about what they found, why class has such a big impact on people's careers and what we can do about it. And honestly, he is a brilliant book and it is a great conversation. Then we're talking to Isabel Farkey from the Creative Mentor Network, a charity working to tackle some of these issues in the creative industries. And and as I said, both of them are fascinating conversations. They pick up on some of the themes from our discussion on meritocracy with philosopher Michael Sandel last year. Now, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is I went out for lunch with my friend Chris the other day to a place called Fat Macy's. And Fat Macy's is a great restaurant in the Pimlico area of London, but I'm not trying to get a free meal like Ed with his uh, free bottle of gin. I I mention it because it's a social enterprise and they use the food and hospitality business to help people who are living in temporary accommodation move out of hostels. So the great thing about that was that the more I ate, the more good I was doing. So even though it was like a big old meal of sharing plates – because we'd not seen each other since before lockdown and we were very hungry. We had dessert, we had cardamom donuts, but stuffing myself, I really felt like I was doing some good for the world. Oh, well, that's good. And how is Chris Addison? Let, let me ask you a question. He asked in the restaurant what I thought to be quite a strange question. So it's sharing plates. And, and when the uh, server came over, he said to her, how many plates per person do you recommend? Do you not think that is a strange question? Why? Because the answer is always, without fail, we recommend three to four plates per person, depending on how hungry you are. I've never eaten in a small plates restaurant where they haven't said that. No, I think it's a completely legit question because it could be, well, they're rather small portions, so it could be three or four, or they're rather big. They never say that. Keep a record of it. Keep data. I'm with Chris. I stand with Chris. Why must you always take the other person's side? It's as if you enjoy being in opposition. Anyway, uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful, which is also about Brighton, is I went in the sea. You did it. So there was a lot of discussion about this last week. Well, I went some... The, the pebbles were fine. I went some distance from my hotel because I was sort of... I did slightly have the photo opportunity anxiety. Did you not alert the press pack then? I couldn't find... Yeah. Uh, I couldn't find anyone swimming for... Like, I walked... So like 10, 15 minutes from my hotel. And I thought, mm, I don't really want to be in there on my own because that might be bad. And it was quite choppy. Um, and so I did go in. I found some people went in some distance from them. Um, and it was very choppy and a little bit scary, if I'm honest. Uh, and then I got out and I met a lady and she said, oh, do you think it's safe to go in? And I said, well, I don't really know. It was a bit scary. And she said, oh, well, actually, I swim most days, but I'm not sure I'd get in. Now it's just too choppy. So even an experienced Brighton sea swimmer thought, no, that's a bit much for me. I, I, I kind of, you know, the, basically the way I regard my life now, Jeff, when I'm doing these kind of things is I think is it's going to be good material for the podcast. <laughs> I thought of walking back to my hotel in my swimming trunks and then I thought that was a bad idea. So I got changed on the beach. Oh, what a great shame. That would have been good material for the podcast and a lovely morale boost for the people of the Labour Party conference. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're going to start on this by talking to the co-author of a brilliant book called The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to be Privileged, also Professor of Sociology at LSE, Sam Friedman. Hello. Hi there. Doesn't he look young to be a professor, Jeff? 
Yeah. Or is that just us getting older, that professors look young? Only just the professor, literally about two months into being a professor. So Maybe that's the sign of being getting old, Jeff, is when your professors are younger than you, do you think? You're not helping matters, Sam, by not wearing tweed or <laughs> corduroy patches on your, uh, on your elbows. Um, so, so I'm so interested to talk about this stuff with you. I think the way in which you, your background can affect and determine your career, both in terms of the jobs that you can easily access and the, the progression that is possible within those jobs is so interesting and, and can be quite invisible to people. But I just wanted to get this out of the way right at the at start off the bat. How do you determine your class? I think people really struggle with this or perhaps they deliberately obscure it and I'm sure we'll come on to that later. But can, can you give us your definition of class when we're talking about career outcomes? It is a really tough question. And I think, you know, it makes this a particularly complex topic when you think about equalities legislation, for example, and perhaps we'll get onto that. Reality is there's a basket of different measures that you might use. And for example, the Social Mobility Commission now um, has a sort of toolkit that asks employers to uh, ask their employees a set of questions. What type of schooling you had, your parental experience of higher education, but the one that we use um, in the book and that um, I think we would say is the sort of best single proxy for, for class background is what your parents did for a living when you were growing up. That's so funny. That's one of the first things Ed asked me. And at the time, I didn't know was that was just a way of gauging somebody's class background. Did I, did I ask you that? Yeah, when I came for that meeting about doing the podcast at your house, it was uh, it was one of the you sort of dropped it into conversation. But I think I, I can be a bit difficult to place for one reason. Or yeah. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. All right. Um. So so what we'd like to start with is just getting you to to lay out some of this stuff for us and, and give us a bit of a an overview of how class shapes your career trajectory in, in this country, especially. I mean, it remains the case that access to our, our professions tends to be dominated by the privileged. So you are, for example, 60% uh, more likely to reach professional managerial occupations. If you come from a background where the main breadwinner in your family was doing a professional or managerial job themselves, I think, though, that hides um, the fact that these sorts of professions are all quite different. So you have the sort of social exclusivity of, of, of medicine, for example, at one end of the scale. Only 6% of our doctors in this country are from working class backgrounds. But you also have the kind of openness uh, relatively of, of, of other professions like engineering, where actually the majority of, of, of engineers are not from upper middle or, or middle class backgrounds. And you might be interested to know some of this is about the advantages that flow directly from following your, in your parents' footsteps. You might be slightly staggered to know that if you have a parent who is a doctor, you're 24 times more likely to become a doctor yourself. Wow. And if your parent was a lawyer, 17 times. Um, so, you know, there are these really interesting um, patterns in terms of who gets in. But I suppose, you know, the, the book that we wrote, The Class Ceiling, is is actually more about what happens when you're in these jobs, who gets on. Um, and there, you know, that the headline is basically that it quite literally pays to be privileged. Those from working class backgrounds in our professions face a very significant class pay gap. So it's about six and a half thousand pounds, about 16% compared to their colleagues in the same set of jobs from uh, privileged 
professional managerial backgrounds. And I, and I think that the important thing, I suppose, to note in, in, in our analysis there is that that pay gap persists even when you adjust for a whole range of, um, of kind of meritocratic or, you know, meritocratic it, you know, in, in quote marks measures, you know, educational attainment, um, how much training you have, how much work experience you have. I think it's worth really underlining this point, Sam. It's not just that you're very much less likely to get into some of these professions if you're from a working class background. It's that even once within those professions, you face a real negative differential, correct? Absolutely. And and, and I think the, the thing to say about that, just to clarify, is um, you know, I think sometimes when people hear the words pay gaps, they, they what they envisage is a situation where somebody's doing exactly the same job uh, and getting paid different amounts. We know that's an issue for the gender pay gap, for example. Um, what we found in our research is that it's it's much more to do with progression, right? It's much more to do with the fact um, that those from privileged backgrounds tend to get to the highest paying positions and therefore on average earn more which is is why we think of it more as a as a class ceiling and just one quick sort of um footnote that i think is really important to note that class pay gap is particularly acute if you are a woman from a working class background or if you are ethnic minority and from a working class background not all actually but but most ethnic minority professionals from working class backgrounds face this kind of double disadvantage i think that's important just to sort of register because we we are in an environment at the moment i think where quite unhelpfully many people including those in government are trying to to kind of weaponize class a bit and play it off against particularly race and i, I felt that very strongly sitting on the government social mobility commission but you know this type of research shows very clearly that that these are intersectional disadvantages that have to be taken seriously in in that way rather than as kind of separate separate axes of of disadvantage and and the the disadvantage of what you call the class ceiling what what are the factors behind that i mean we went inside uh, elite sort of firms or employers channel four we went inside a big multinational accountancy firm uh, an architecture practice um, recently the uk civil service i suppose a bunch of, of things kind of kind of pull out across those case studies. First, I mean, it's it's just the brute force of parental wealth, the bank of mum and dad, if you will. What we were finding there is that, you know, you often think about parental wealth perhaps as useful in in getting a foot in the door, getting that unpaid internship, what have you. But what we were finding talking to people about their careers is that actually for those from advantaged backgrounds, you know, parental wealth had acted as this kind of pivotal layer of insulation, from a lot of the uncertainties associated with forging a a career. You know, part of that's about, you know, whether you can migrate and negotiate the cost of living in in a city like London, where most of the opportunities are clustered, but, but also more psychologically in terms of engendering a sense, you can take more risks in your career, take, you know, long-term risks that, that, you know, that may have, have these payoffs for your career. Another one was this kind of idea of, of sponsorship. You know, we often kind of hear employers talk a lot about, mentorship in a kind of most tinted way but I think what we were finding when you spoke to people who had been very successful sort of underpinning their trajectory had often been a couple of senior colleagues who had quite explicitly taken them under their wing had kind of acted to to advocate on their behalf 
And of course, people present this as an innocent process of, of kind of talent spotting, right? And of course, you can't ever really pass in any individual case the degree to which that that's the case. But what was interesting was to kind of ask about the genesis of these relationships. And there, interestingly, almost always, it wasn't work performance that, that, that was the initial uh, spark. It was kind of class cultural similarity, sharing taste, sharing interest, sharing humour. Um, and, you know, as those from privileged backgrounds tend to dominate those upper echelons, they, this kind of sponsorship in one's own image tends to reproduce this class ceiling effect. The final one I, I, that I think is perhaps the most interesting one in a way and the most tricky to kind of get across is, is, is more about the nature of what we mean by merit. Supposedly objective measures of merit are actually often assessed very differently according to how they're performed in the workplace. Just explain to me what that would look like in a, in a specific job, just so I can grasp what you're talking about. So um, I'll give you an example of the civil service where I just finished working. And what we found there is that there's a kind of dominant behavioural code that tends to dominate the sort of upper echelons of the civil senior civil service and, and, and really prestigious departments like Treasury. And we, we, we characterise that as, as, as it's called studied neutrality. And it, it encompasses things like accent and speech. So a particular kind of RP pronunciation, other elements of self-presentation. So kind of like a, an understated, unflappable sort of embodied sensibility, as well as like a distinctly kind of intellectual orientation to particularly politics. So there's a lot of discussion um, among senior civil servants about the fact that you need to sort of master a particular way of talking about politics, which, of course, neutrality makes sense, right? You know, civil servants have to be impartial, but there's a particular performance of it that betrays, I think, some of these forms of what you would call cultural capital that tend to be inculcated in, in privileged families. And, and, and I suppose the point is that it's a kind of package of things that make up this dominant behavioural code and that that tends to be kind of misread or misrecognised as as forms of merit, that you fit, right, that you're the kind of senior civil servant uh, type. And often that's that assessment is a kind of gut feeling, right, and that's often how senior gatekeepers talk about it in the in the in the in the accountancy firm they were quite unashamed you know like um you know so and so i can feel it their partner material and and it's sort of digging into that gut feeling right and 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 what makes that up and sam just i know it's kind of unpacking something which is quite hard to unpack but what are the characteristics of that thing that is being valued that is in fact a sort of becomes a proxy for sort of reinforcing privilege it's often this kind of what you might call in shorthand the kind of self-presentational baggage of a privileged class background the point actually is that that package ed it actually looks different in different professions so for example at channel four it was very different it was this sense of informality that you had to master not neutrality but informality you know there was the bewildering amount of conversation at channel four about the right type of trainers to wear in the workplace. I was about to say trainers. God, that's so weird. I mean, it was totally bizarre to me as a kind of, as a sort of boring academic, that this would be part of the code. People love to talk about others who were kind of getting this or, or wrong or right, or, you know, when to mock your manager, when to put your feet up in a meeting. 
all of these sort of very subtle ways of being. Um, I mean, but interestingly, on that on that point, it's just useful to come back to the to the gender point here because one of the interesting findings. So I was really intrigued by this this sense that that women from working class backgrounds fare particularly poorly, and in terms of earnings, and and trying to get into that in the civil service. One of the really interesting things there was that in terms of digging into why that might be was was talking to people about whether they share their background in the workplace whether they talk openly about it and what you found among particularly white men from working class backgrounds is that they're often actually quite happy to talk about their background at work and in some cases even had sort of used it as part of their sort of pitch as a sort of different type of leader and had been able to almost, you know, deploy it in that way, almost like an acceptable form of difference. Almost uniformly, women from working class backgrounds that I spoke to in the civil service said they, they actually actively conceal their background. And I think there's something interesting about how we read working class identities in a very gendered way in the UK, you know, and I think it's probably something very much to do with with our with our history as a country and the fact that you know we do still have a, a fairly romantic idea of uh that we can hark back to about our working class industrial past but it's very masculinized and women can't draw upon that repertoire in, in the same way and actually you think about the cultural tropes that surround working class women um they're very stigmatizing well well this sort of leads into uh this thing that you spent time on recently which class identity and yeah as i said at the top people get themselves in all kind of knots and denial about it and i've heard over the years that so many people try and lay claim to humble origins by talking about how their granddad grew up poor before i don't know becoming the chairman of marks and spencers or something and like despite the fact that they themselves grew up in a big house with holidays abroad and and private education it's it's some kind of inherited hardship makes them working class What, what is going on with those people why why do middle some middle class people have that need to deflect their privilege and 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 how how common is that yeah it's, it's 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 fascinating so yeah i mean i've i've similarly been interested in that for a long time i think the interesting thing to start with is how peculiarly british this is as a phenomenon in almost every other country in the world when you look at what you'd call objective class markers right like i mentioned earlier uh parental occupation or your own occupation or what have you but then you you look at how that relates to people's subjective sense of their class background. So there's often questions asked in surveys, do you see yourself as working class or lower socioeconomic background? In most of the world, people tend to overestimate middle classness, even when they're often, you know, in more working class positions or working class backgrounds. In Britain, it's the opposite. We hugely overestimate working class destinations and very much origins. And the interesting thing, I suppose, for me was to look at um, people who are in middle-class jobs and have come from middle-class backgrounds, objectively, in terms of what their parents have done for a living, but see themselves as coming from working-class backgrounds. Literally one in four uh, of people who have that profile. So they're in a middle-class professional job, they've come from a professional managerial background in terms of what their parents did. One in four of those people in Britain, you know, and that's, that's several million, <laughs> um, see themselves as coming from 
a working class background. So, and, so what's going on there? Like, what, what, what are they, you know, they're, they're, is, is what a working class life is, is some, something that they just don't understand? Is it what they've been told? Has this always been the case? Why, why is so that? I dug into this in interviews and it, and it was fascinating because what tended to happen in those particular interviews was that I always start the interview with asking people about how do you see your class background and then some of these objective questions. But what would these sorts of individuals would do is rather than talking about their own upbringing, they would start and craft their origin story around a much more kind of multi-generational extended family history. And, you know, you go back more than a generation or so in Britain and most people have got a working class story somewhere along the line. Um, And, you know, I'd I'd be clear on this because I think it can be misinterpreted. I don't. My perception is that this is not some sort of willful, conscious, calculated um, deflection of privilege. I think, you know, we grow up hearing stories of our families and our pasts and they are provide powerful psychological frames for how we see ourselves. But the point sociologically, and this is how it links to the class ceiling, I think, is that, you know, there is a sense in which when that is also sort of obscuring some of the objective advantages that you've had, it has implications, right? It, it means that people are, I think, often blinded um, to their complicity in some of these barriers. I think more generally, and, and this is perhaps the more interesting element, is that I think it tells us something about kind of how powerful the kind of meritocratic discourse and sort of myth is in Britain that People are very keen, I think, whether they know it or not, to position themselves as having a kind of meritocratic legitimacy. And the, and the way you signal meritocratic legitimacy, sort of par excellence in a way, is to have this humble origin story and a, and a, and a, and a, and a kind of rags to riches upward mobility trajectory against the odds, right? But obviously that does sort of erase the, some of the privileges that have actually shaped lots of those people's lives so i i actually you know present it as 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 one of the things that i think is also driving this class ceiling effect can i ask you sam about the context to, to some of this historically are we more or less open than we were uh or about the same i think it sort of depends on 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 how far back you go I think when you go back, I've been doing some recent work looking at um, entrance to who's who, which is a kind of catalogue of the, the the most elite positions in the UK. Um, and it goes back about 150 years. And you can look there, at, for example, how powerful, say, the top elite private schools in the UK, the, the you know, Eton and Harrow and the other Clarendon schools. And what you see there is that over 150 years, those schools have declined in their propulsive power. But the decline is very much a sort of decline in the context of persistence, right? So um, they were insanely powerful um, in sort of this process of elite reproduction, and they are now still incredibly um, powerful, but not quite as much. I think that in general, British society, the sort of the, the the way it's read is that you know the sort of thinking more of a kind of fifty year um, lens, sixty year lens. Um, there's a sort of disagreement between sociologists and economists. Economists basically who use income 
um, mobility tend to to think mobility is actually decreasing over time in the UK and sociologists tend to think slightly more optimistically that it's uh, that it's stayed the same but there's I think so so probably there were changes quite profound ones more like a century ago that did open British society up can I ask you about before we get on to solutions can I ask you about the link between social mobility and inequality so social mobility, the ability to, to rise up and so on, but also how unequal your society is, because there's quite a lot of international research on this. The more unequal, if you like, the, 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 the wider apart the rungs of the ladder, the harder it is to climb. Yeah. Is that something that you've looked at? I, uh, it's not something I've looked at personally, but I think that link is incredibly well established. And I think you, it's logical. If you just think about what we've been talking about, particularly in relation to wealth inequality, and the ability to pass on that wealth, um, it's very clear that, you know, the, the more inequality there is, the possibility of equality of opportunity actually being realised is much more difficult. And so for me, that link is, is, is very clear. But I have to say, I find very frustrating that that link between social mobility and inequality is often not really part of the, the political debate around social mobility. And I talk again from being on the, on to having, coming to the end of a tenure on the government social mobility commission where, you know, it's been very hard to get that, that message across. And of course that's political, right? That's, that's about the government not necessarily wanting to hear that. Let, let's talk about solutions to these issues. And you go through in your book, I think 10 sets of solutions. Say something about individual employers and their and their role in this having worked on this agenda for about 10 years now i actually think there's a there's a role for government the most um, progress has been made by employers and and i think so you know one of the key things that needs to continue to happen is just around data and data collection so um at, at present it's a sort of there is a domino effect taking place but it's still quite patchy um, that firms in different professions actually collect data on the class backgrounds of their their staff and therefore have a picture of how 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 dominated their 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 top echelons are by by those from different backgrounds and this is why um, I was you know really heartened to see the news um, a couple of weeks ago that KPMG uh, were setting targets is that you know what they've been able to do is by doing robust measurement of their staff, they've also been able to then establish that there is a class pay gap within KPMG by class background, which has then given them the sort of the evidence base to to set targets on the basis that those targets um, are not about some sort of um, just the kind of social justice claim. It's actually that there's clearly wasted talent within their firm um, that, that that setting these targets will will hopefully alleviate. So I think there's there's a dual thing around um, data collection and, 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 and compelling organisations to collect data in this area, but also actually pinning that to things like targets so that so that firms can can then be publicly and externally called to account um, rather than it just being a kind of tick box exercise for the for the for the diversity brochure. And say something about government and its role. And obviously there's like, you could be, you know, talk about this for hours, but. 
you know, I think that what KPMG have done is is something that could be mandated by government, i.e. class pay gap reporting. They've shown in a big, high-profile firm that that it's possible to do it and that it really helps them understand themselves. You know, it's obviously much easier for big firms like that to do it, but it's shown that it's possible. Um, and so I think, you know, you could imagine a scenario where the government did the same with 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 class origin as they do with gender. I'd also say, and I mean, this is perhaps a bigger conversation than we have time for, but I do think it's time to think about actually making class background a protected characteristic. Just to explain this, so this is the, uh, and I was a little bit involved in this actually in discussions with Harriet Harman when she was doing her Equality Act, and I was very in favour of class being a protected characteristic as was she and i think it just ha- it's in the act isn't it yeah. but it has but it hasn't it's not been... been enacted yeah yeah i think it's called the so- socioeconomic duty and what would it mean exactly well i think it i mean you know in the du- the duty would 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 compel i think um public um providers to sort of i think the wording is to have due consideration for socioeconomic inequality in all the decision making they do um, I think more generally, there's a really symbolic role that something trying to make something like class origin a protected characteristic, which is slightly separate, but I think would be allied if you were to bring the, the duty into effect. Because I think what that would do is would just mean that this agenda um, is something which organisations routinely would would have to respond to in the way they do to other qualities and legislation. So I think it's um, it would be a it, it would it would a lot of things would flow from making that kind of that kind of legal change it's complicated right for the reasons that we started this conversation about uh around measurement but i don't think those are insurmountable i mean presumably when we ask about solutions i mean you have to act at every level from universal childcare to your school system to the help people get to go to university. I mean, if you really were serious about this agenda, you'd have to act at every every level. Absolutely. I mean, it... and you'd have to have a less unequal society, as our previous conversation. A- absolutely, and I think these things are that you, you have to think about every life stage. Um, and as you say, I think you know it does come back to a wider discussion um, about inequality and, and and how that connects to these. Both, both the, the 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 inequalities of outcome, but also the lived experience of class and class inequality. Uh, so I think there's lot there's lots at stake here. Can I ask you something about that troubles me about this debate a bit? And it's so and it's sort of been in, implicit already in our discussion about inequality and social mobility. I, I remember when I was in government and people used to talk about this agenda and the sort of the most kind of wonky people would say, you know, well, you know, will this will be successful when ministers start talking about downward social mobility, that they want to see downward social mobility. <laughs> and I would always be like, okay, that's that's sort of, you know, the great. Uh, let me let me sell you downward social mobility. I think it's sort of I think it sort of goes to something quite important in this debate, which is why social mobility is necessary but not sufficient for the good society fundamentally. <laughs> You don't just want a society where there's a sort of equal opportunity to be vastly unequal. Now, now actually, you know, it's it's very bad that there is very unequal opportunity, vastly unequal opportunity to be vastly unequal. So we, it's, it's not like in that I'm not quibbling at all with the fundamental analysis. But but I think 
I don't know. I just am interested in your thoughts on this. Do you know what? It's it's something that I think is so important, Ed. I'm glad you brought it up because I think that what tends to happen, and, and I, I get lumped into this and I, and I can see why, is that, you know, even in the interest of critiquing this sort of meritocratic myth, you can read my work as, as further fetishizing the top. And, you know, I think we do need professions and we'll always, to some extent, need some sort of hierarchy of responsibility within them. And, and therefore, it's important that the, that the allocation to those positions is as fair as possible. But I think, you know, it, at the same time, we have to have a concurrent conversation about how we value different types of work in the first place um, and, 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 and reduce sort of income inequality between different types of work and positions within types of work um, uh, and status um, accordingly, because I think, you know, that's, that's, that is often the biggest problem about the, the discourse. About it's like the Sandel, rights. it's like Sandel's, we had Michael Sandel on this podcast uh, some months back about his book. Yeah, no, and I think, it, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, we have to, we have to continue to, to grapple with. And obviously the pandemic has, has at least opened up to some extent people's awareness of, of 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 how arbitrary some of the um, status inequalities are in how we think about different types of work, and have perhaps to some extent opened up people rethinking or revaluing other forms of work that that still are profoundly undervalued economically. Well, Sam, look, your book is brilliant. What's next? Apart from uh, now that you're a professor, you can just sort of <laughs> you know g- give up work and put your feet up. So the next is is a book on the kind of historical development of the of the British elite, sort of going back 150 years, and trying to trying to use various data sources to do that. And is that based on the who's who stuff? It's based on who's who. It's also based on uh, probate data that we're collecting. Um, the Oxford National Dictionary. Um, also, we've managed to scrape the entire historical database of um, desert island discs. Um, wow. <laughs> so there's all sorts of fun stuff wow. that we, that's going to come into this, uh, this book. That is, that is really smart. Well, look, uh, Sam Friedman, uh, you're the co-author of The Class Ceiling, Why It Pays to be Privileged. I, I think it is a profoundly important book and, and widely recognised as such. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs and medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. 
From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. To talk further about this issue and about the practical implications of some of the ideas that Sam Friedman talked about, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Isabel Farkey, who is founder and CEO of the Creative Mentor Network. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. First things first, perhaps you could tell us what the Creative Mentor Network is and what's the story behind it. We're a charity and our mission is to support young people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds into careers in the creative industries through mentoring. And we do that through kind of connecting them to industry mentors and and sort of supporting their journey throughout that. And the story behind it is I set it up about five years ago. I was a teacher for about four years and I actually really enjoyed being a teacher and I loved working with my students, but I found like the education system to be so obsessed with exams and making students pass exams that it felt like it wasn't a very good preparation for for life after school. Um, And I felt like I could have a bigger impact if I supported them to kind of expand their kind of social capital and their social networks. So wanted to find a way. I felt like the creative industries was a sort of expanding labour market that I was I was um, seeing lots of my friends employed in, and I wanted to connect them to that community. And talk to us: what are the specific barriers facing young people from working class backgrounds who want to work in the creative industries? I'm sure it's a huge range, but talk to us about that. It starts really early at school, and really the. I would say the deprioritization of art subjects in schools in state in the state school system has been quite systematic over the last 10 years. And there's also kind of a real, I think social capital plays a huge part in it. All recruitment is to an extent network driven, but the creative industries specifically is really that's that's extremely exaggerated. But what that means is it's so often based on who you know rather than what you know. And, and it's not even about necessarily being able to get that piece of work experience because your uncle works in an advertising agency or whatever. Quite a lot of the time, it's also just about knowing that those jobs exist. Like the students that we work with a lot of the time will understand, you know, their understanding of the creative industries is, you know, they might have ambitions to be kind of a film director or a singer songwriter or an actor and those kind of headline creative industry jobs. But we'll have no idea about all of the kind of ecosystem of jobs that exist that are really interesting jobs and a lot less competitive and, and, you know, potentially a lot less risky to attain. They won't necessarily have so much of an awareness of that. And that's very much what we're trying to do is, is, is connect, um, connect those dots so that they can understand, you know, what are, the, what are the jobs? What are the routes into those jobs? What are, the, what are the financial incentives for going into those jobs? Tell us about your mentoring program, what it involves and how it seeks to challenge the barriers. So the, the way the, the sort of structure of it is that we work with um, creative industry businesses on the one hand, and they sponsor their employees to be mentors on our program. And then on the other hand, we work with lots of schools and education partners, universities, youth centres to uh, we send in ambassadors from our program. So young people who've already been on our program to go in and talk to students about their experience and encourage them to apply. And they have to meet certain eligibility criteria, which are around socioeconomic status. And once they, you know, once we've interviewed them and they get a place on our program, we match them up with those with those creative industry professionals and support their journey. I guess the difference between our program and other programs is that we provide quite a significant chunk of mentor training. 
So from a mentor's perspective, if you're a creative industry, if you're if you work, if you're a strategist in in an advertising agency or or in a um, Sony Music, for example, it's not just that you're matched up with a young person. You're very much supported through that journey. And the idea is very much that they are equipped to be a better mentor and to understand how best to support the young person they're working with. But also it's about change on on a wider scale really and that they can take back that learning and their experience one-to-one working with this young person and use it to inform things like you know leadership practice and recruitment practices within their own organization so it has more of a systemic change than just that kind of that one young person that they're working with. Can you tell me a bit about what you hear back from the young people who've been in the program? So much of it is about really understanding you know what the jobs available are you know, there's that that phrase of you can't be what you can't see. And it's really true. You know, if, for example, if you if your understanding of advertising is, is quite limited, not understanding the difference between a strategist and a creative and a producer is is really significant. And so for them, I think a big part of it is, is about having more awareness about where they could go. And then like also confidence and, and the ability to kind of talk about and express your ideas like private schools spend so much resource on like theatres and debating and like you know those communication skills are so developed in private schools and in state schools it's so much about written exams and regurgitating information and what and what we call like a knowledge curriculum and so I think that's a really that's like definitely something that we hear from students is like that that's it's been an opportunity for them to kind of get better at articulating what their opinion is and, and having being able to present. Is there a sort of success story that springs to mind that you, you could tell us about where you think, okay, this this is when a young person came to us, this was their situation, this is what we were able to do, this is who we were able to match them up to, and, and this is what it's done for them? Big, big example of that is how we matched up someone with a a, a mentor who they really they really wanted to kind of study in the States and and um the mentor was who was in a WhatsApp group with various different people suggested that they like put together a GoFundMe, which they did. And then like it for like someone was um, the agent of a really big grime artist who then sponsored their whole university fees. So they were able to go to, to the States to to study, which was amazing. But like on a much, you know, for some people, it's, it's the much kind of smaller developments, which are actually more interesting. So we worked with, um, one particular girl who was matched, who was really, really interested in in fashion and really wanted to get into the fashion industry. And her mentor said that when she first started working with her, she was even too shy to, you know, she'd offer her a cup of tea and she'd always refuse. And like she was was making eye contact was even like quite a difficult thing for her. So, the, you know, if you want to get into fashion, being able to kind of show your portfolio to, to someone was that felt like really far out of reach. But at the end of the program, we always do like a big presentation, which is where mentors and mentees present the, the work that they've been working on together. And this particular girl was able to kind of showcase her work in a film. And she she was incredibly talented, but just hadn't to that point been very confident about how to how to demonstrate and talk about her work. And she was able to do that to a group of mentors and mentees who she felt very comfortable with and she then went on to get a job in in the fashion industry off the back of um someone that she met at that event that showcase that's brilliant and and then on that thing of systemic change when you think about bosses of of companies that you've worked with employers that you've worked with how do you kind of open their minds how do you get to a situation where they understand that culturally the the people 
who work for us in, in terms of business culture look and talk and behave like this? And how do you get past getting somebody from a different background into that company and not for them to feel like they have to learn to imitate that behavior to pass? I think the way that we try and think about it is like there are certain rules of the game and it's really important if you work in the creative industries and you want it to be inclusive to make those rules of the game really explicit because if they're if they're implicit like we had training session we were talking to someone the other day who we were talking about examples of cultural capital and how that can make you feel excluded and they said that when they there was someone who worked in publishing when they first started working in publishing they got invited to a party and on the invite said it was a dj party so they assumed there was going to be a dj there and they thought that was really exciting and whatever when they arrived it was actually a dinner jacket you know it was a dinner jacket dress code and that you know the way that that actually sorry they, it was before they arrived they realized that like you know that the idea that you didn't know that and that there was this sort of knowledge that you weren't aware of can make you feel really excluded but it's also about it's not about asking the young people that we're supporting to kind of completely adopt that cultural capital it's also about encouraging them to see the value in for example like you know the food that they they might eat at home with their family or the music that they're really interested in or like how tiktok works and how interesting that is you know like they're it's it's about sort of empowering them and, and, and encouraging them to see their own value, their their own cultural capital. And uh, and if, if if a young person is listening to this, or in fact, if if somebody uh, is listening to this and is in, interested in incorporating it into their workplace, what can you do for them? How do, how do they? Uh... They can just visit our website, so www.creativementalnetwork.org, and they can sign up directly there, and we'll get we'll get in touch with them to invite them into interview and hopefully get a place on our program. Well, it's it's fantastic work that you're doing. Thanks for taking the time to tell us about it. Uh, Isabel Farkey, founder and CEO of Creative Mentor Network. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, I thought that was fascinating. I really did. Didn't you? Yeah, it was one of my, one of my favourite episodes. I could listen to Sam Friedman all day and I thought what Isabel was doing was really good and important. I mean, I just thought it was so interesting. And, we, and, we, and it's like we talk about it so little. It's like it's a sort of our dirty secret. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I really agree. You know, when we had Michael Sandel on the other month and the, the stuff with that Sam was talking about, I, I sort of agree with how this emphasis on meritocracy is a problem, and and that like we value different types of work wrongly. But but I simultaneously think that you know if you're from a working class background and you do want to do any career you you want to do that that should be the obstacles shouldn't be there that of course that's your ambition of course and it and it just you know personally it really resonates with me so like you grew up sort of squarely middle class i know your parents had like an immigrant story but which is its own thing sure sure sure. you know they were in academia and in in terms like the world you lived in and grew up in and what jobs and possibility looked like your idea of what a job or a career could be just what people did for a living and what you could do for a living was was probably like very different to Completely. the environment I grew up in just because you know even when I when I said I wanted to work in the media which you know that would be like you deciding you wanted to be an astronaut or something like there, there were no frames of reference in my world for that and you know careers teachers as well you know, mentioned this, we're, we're ill-equipped. They were just completely stumped by it. And then you've got this factor that both Sam and Isabel touched on, that when you get into those worlds, then you have to kind of navigate them. And and even now, I feel like my personality is is different or the, the, the way I talk or, or something is different 
in certain work environments where it's just full of, full of middle class people than it is if I'm at home with my family. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not from poverty. I'm from just a regular working class background. I'm a, you know, a white man, so there's a privilege that goes with that. So if that's like that for me, then, then what is it like, you know, if somebody from a, a background like mine or, or from, you know, an economically poorer background who's also a woman or also is from another race? But, you know, as, as you got into it at the end with Sam, sort of how you fix it, it's like every level from how we think about and value work, um, you know, universal childcare, access to higher education. It's, it's and the, the, you know, the way that inequality factors into it. It's, it's a difficult one to fix. I mean, you know what is interesting about it is that it is relatively, it is relatively unowned political space. I mean, it is both owned by everybody and not owned by anybody. Everybody says they're in favour of it, equal opportunity, social mobility... But it's sort of rare for politicians to really claim it in a comprehensive way. I think it partly goes to the thing I was saying at the end, which is it is both really important, social mobility, etc., and yet insufficient. And so somehow you've got to, it's sort of it's sort of both and. The way I think about it is, well, you want a more socially mobile society and you want a less unequal one. I love that phrase that you used. Um, we we don't want to make it, you know, uh, the equal opportunity to be equal opportunity to make. Up, yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought that was really good. But I mean, at the moment, we've got the very unequal opportunity to be unequal, which is kind of in a way even worse. Reasons to be cheerful: a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, if you've got thoughts about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you. We feel we've been a bit negligent, don't we, Jeff? We have been remiss of late. Yeah, I think we need to give. I think we need to give people a little prod, don't we? Yes. You can find us on cheerfulpodcast.com. Some of our best ideas, in fact, most of our best ideas, in fact, almost all of our best ideas, have come from listeners suggesting guests or ideas or cheerful people. We just love to hear from you, and we'll read all of your emails. This comes from Helen Beckett. Uh, Dear Ed and Jeff, thanks as always for your great podcast. So many people need the hope you offer. Uh, Anyway, I just wondered if you had discussed human libraries before. I've just stumbled across the idea on social media. I think they sound like a good idea. I would love it if we could choose books for other people too. My first pick would be for Therese Coffey, listening to someone on Universal Credit for half an hour. Best wishes to you both. Helen, what is a human library? Joel's just sent us a link about this. Yes. Uh, it reminds me of some of the conversations we've had about how you reach out to people across different points of view and so on. Would you be willing to be a human library, Jeff? A human... I wouldn't want to be like yeah. an overdue human at the human library. I wouldn't want somebody to be waiting for an amnesty so that they didn't get a late fine. I could be gone for years. I bet, I bet you had lots of, you've been like a long overdue books person from libraries i am but yeah yeah i can't show my face in macclesfield library ever again i took a book about elephants out in 1984 in an attempt to win a competition to recreate hannibal's trip across the alps never returned it and i think they've got a warrant out for me elephants never forget nor do the librarians at macclesfield library um and this one is from from gavin clement He says, this is a brief anecdote about a trip I made in early 2017. Relevant information. On the sleeper train to Inverness. I'd love to do that. Have you ever done a sleeper train? 
I'm not a great one for the sleeper trains, to be honest. Anyway, so I was on the sleeper train to Inverness. In the morning, I got up and made my way to the lounge carriage for breakfast and to watch the magnificent snow-capped mountains sailing by. One other passenger in the carriage, so we got chatting. I know, very un-Jeff-like. He was a, a Scot living in the States who'd come back for a visit. We got to chatting about jobs when he said he was a climate change scientist for the White House. There was a pause. He looked out the window and then said, I don't think I'll be uh, working there again anytime soon. Remember, early 2017. Well, you see, things can get better. That's what it shows, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe he's back there now. At the end, we went our separate ways. But I like to think he may be back at the White House once again after a four-year gap. Well, thanks for that, Gavin. And do feel free to share any memories or anecdotes that the podcast may have shaken loose for you. Possibly encounters on trains, boats... Encounters with Ed, perhaps. Email us through the website. It's cheerfulpodcast.com. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro and I have news to report, which should have been in the intro, but I had an excess of material, unusually, which is that I did my first event in... Uh, six and a half years with one David Cameron this week. You're not starting a podcast together, are you? Well, Jeff, <laughs> uh, I hate to break the bad news to you. When you say your first event in six and a half years, so would the last one have been a televised leaders debate? Yes. Wow. So basically it was the Climate Vulnerable Forum, which is uh, Climate Vulnerable Countries. Former President Nasheed of the Maldives, we had on this podcast, is a friend of David Cameron and a friend of mine. Uh, he invited me to do it. Um, I thought it was important to do it. So we um, we were both there. We both spoke. What did you talk about when you weren't on the, on the platform? I didn't mention the tweet. I thought it was a bit impolitic to mention it. You didn't use the word chaos at all then? I, di- I didn't really, know. Anyway, we'll obviously keep you in touch if we decide to go on tour together. I do, yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll subscribe to the podcast. I'll like, rate and review. Thank you. Should we thank our guests? We should. I'd like to thank Sam Friedman, Isabel Farkey. Emma Corsham produces all the audio for our podcast, gets it sounding just lovely. Thank you to Emma for all that hard work that she does every week. Um, Joel Pierce is the man who does all the research. The man with a plan. The he's a man with more than a plan, Eddie. I mean, he is the uh, he's the power behind. I don't know if you could describe this podcast as a podcasting throne. Game of Thrones. But it is, it's, it's all Joel, really. We are but his puppets. Um, so thanks to uh, to Joel for that, who's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed music. James Deacon made our eye dents. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been giving the gift of gin. He's just a tonic. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.